Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Greetings, friends. I'm Mariquita Guerrera, and I am here with Dr. Isabel Cañas. Isabel is a Mexican-American speculative fiction writer and has authored many pieces of short fiction. She's been featured in Lightspeed Magazine as well as Nightmare Magazine, among others. We are here today to discuss her debut and phenomenal novel, The Hacienda. And when I say this is my dream book, I am not kidding. Isabel, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me. If your listeners could just see the grin that is just (laughs) spreading from ear to ear to hear that. Oh, I love it. I mean, I feel like I've been waiting my life for someone to write a book like this. And I was like, me too, me too. That's why I had to do it. I'm very grateful you did. Thank (laughs) you. Before we get too far into into our discussion, would you mind telling us a little bit about Hacienda and what sort of sparked the idea for this book? Absolutely. So uh, we join the Hacienda's main character, Beatriz, in 1823 in Mexico, just after it has uh, gotten its independence from Spain after an 11-year war of independence. And she finds herself in a really difficult financial and social position where she might lose everything unless she makes an advantageous marriage. And so she does so with a stranger, a widower, in fact, whose first wife died under mysterious circumstances that Beatriz hears rumors about and decides not to listen to because she has a plan and she's getting herself out of this tough spot. So she moves from Mexico City to his dilapidated uh, country estate or hacienda that has been in his family for generations uh, called Hacienda San Isidro. And she's living there alone when she discovers that it is, she discovers two things. One, it is profoundly haunted. (laughs) And two, no one seems to believe her. So she looks for help and finds it in the form of a local priest, a young man named Padre Andres, who has some dark secrets of his own. And so it's up to Beatriz and her wits and her grit to survive the menace that is this haunted house. Oh, I love it. And there are a lot of um, twists and turns and like really like engaging aspects of this book that I don't want to give away at all to our our readers. So I'm going to keep this spoiler free. And I think we can focus on themes if that works for you. Fantastic. Let's go. Okay. So since before this podcast, and many times since this podcast, I've gone on and on about post-colonial Gothic being Mm -hmm. a gorgeous and exciting genre, but there aren't that many books that feature in it though, which is a tragedy. Mm-hmm. Um, this book is almost like a textbook definition of it, which is not to like diminish it at all. It's ma- magical and I love it. Uh, <laughs> is that something you thought about consciously? I thought about, I think I did in a way, because when we read the Gothic, when we're in high school or in college, we read things like Jane Eyre, we read things like Rebecca, I think if you're feeling edgy, you'll reach for The Haunting of Hill House, which is really more of more horror, but does have the classic trappings of the Gothic. But one thing that that we encounter in these books is that they're written from a place um, that is and they're set in places that are imperial centers. Um, So books that are set in England that are Gothic, 
don't necessarily ask the kinds of questions that I as a historian and I as a reader and I as a Mexican-American am interested in asking. Like, where does the money come from? You have this big old house. Where does it come from? I even sometimes struggle with reading historical fiction set in, or historical romance specifically, I think, because it's almost always set in 19th century England and with wealthy characters and, oh, the marriage mart and big houses and stuff. And I'm like, where is the money coming from? It is coming from India. It is coming from Egypt. It is coming from the Caribbean. And like, on what foundation are these houses being built? And I think one thing I wanted to bring into this book is that I knew I wanted to write a book that had the classic Gothic trappings of the big house, the young woman who comes from a slightly lower class, the and who is inhabits a socially precarious position for one reason or another, the mysterious husband. And one thing I all and so with those trappings, I wanted um, to ask deeper questions because the hacienda is not just a place in this period of Mexican history. It's an institution mm-hmm. and it's one that embodies the racial and socioeconomic disparity that colonial rule in the Americas deeply ingrained and that continues to persist in Latin America and some aspects of it in the Latin American diaspora today. Things like colorism, religion. It it, it really, when it comes to... Um, the setting that I chose for this book and the specific historical period, it's immediately post-colonial. So like perhaps that is like hitting the nail a little too hard on the head. But one thing that I really, I was really drawn to this historical period because it's one that is both a period of immense change and one with incredibly deeply entrenched historical continuity. So the change being Mexico shifted from being a colony to its own country, it became first an empire, then a republic soon thereafter, which was an extremely messy political process. My research for this, (laughs) just the opening little bit of the book was like wild. I was like, how am I going to keep this straight for readers? I hope it succeeded. And there are different ideas about how to treat people and how to, uh, as citizens of this new republic, as equal citizens of this new republic. I mean, there are ideas, but how did that play out in practice? Well, there are incredible deeply entrenched continuities that extend from the Spanish colonial period through this period, like the casta system, which for those who are familiar with the history of the Spanish Americas was a system whereby one's social standing, social class, um, sometimes even legal rights and uh, status was determined by one's racial background. That being one of many ugly named mixes of white European, uh, indigenous and, and or black. So there's a lot of social socioeconomic inequality that persisted because of that system. Like, you know, the landowners, who were the landowners? They were mostly white Europeans or of white European descent from Spain or of white European descent born in the Americas. And these are things that we even see echoes up of, I mean, up until the Mexican revolution, certainly when the Hacienda system was abolished, but even to the current day, because socioeconomic disparity and one's race and colorism all play into this like toxic mix in Latin America. And that kind of, that does extend into our diaspora in the United States as well. So it's a period that is full of material to delve into. If you really want to turn the Gothic on its head and examine the foundation of these grand old houses. 
So it's something I had a lot of fun with researching, but that was also really sometimes difficult to write about. Yeah, I can't imagine how much research must have gone into this because it is uh, very authentic. It's true to the history. And and you do bring in all those layers that, as you mentioned, are missing from a lot of the classical Gothic text. Um, and mm-hmm. I wanted to to ask you, you know, about about some of these things you you already talked about, um, like the. Oh, <laughs> It's okay. I'm excited um, because it, what, that, that's what makes this this story so rich and uh, propulsive. I think, aside from the fact that you have a really deft hand with the horror, is Thank that you. there are all these really pertinent, still even today, layers involved. Beatrice is treated explicitly differently than the first wife, Maria. Carolina, um, mm-hmm. who is routinely uh, referred to with fair skin and hair the color of straw, mm-hmm. you know, a sponge sugar wife, I think is like uh, mm-hmm. how she was described before. And some of the other uh, criollos are saying things like, uh, well, you're not as as pretty as she was because you're darker, mm-hmm. you know, and that is something that pervades to through today. I mean, not to through mm-hmm. today. And, but we also so you you flip the you flip the script a little bit from um, Gothic to the postcolonial Gothic, and you cast a, um, again. I'm not gonna spoil anything. You cast a white character in the role of tormentor, as opposed mm-hmm. to a character of color, which is often what we see in Gothic. Is we see you know uh, a white um, cultures sort mm-hmm. of exercising their fear of the other by yeah. by using religion or skin color to indicate something evil or darker or yeah other is always equated with evil mm-hmm. and i think you see that in a lot of horror as well which is because people often ask me like oh isabel give us your top horror recommendations and stuff and i'm like i really struggle with a lot of horror because a lot of it is written from the white gaze and specifically the white male gaze and i just think that like Uh, Not to be flippant about it, but like a white man and I fear different things and we experience the world in different ways and are afraid, like I said, are afraid of different things. And I just think that like so much of the modern canon of 20th century and even early 21st century horror is the other is demonized. The other is scary. The other is evil. And like, that's fucked up, guys. <laughs> Can we move past that already? Like, in the year of our Lord 2022, I do not want to be reading that. Yeah. I just won't. Um, it's not something I find interesting or engaging or fresh. Yeah. You also touch about the legacy of rape and sexual assault that was perpetrated by colonizers, uh, mm-hmm. which spills over into identity for Andreas uh, with his last name mm-hmm. and into a discussion about abortion for another character. Oh, yeah. Uh, rape and assault were shockingly common and a fair amount of literature has has discussed the children that were born as a result of those violent encounters but there's less about how that legacy remains with those children as they grow with their surnames yes yes i think surnames are a very powerful heirloom that we carry and you know that's a really insightful comment and not one that i thought about but i it's so interesting because writing the writing the per, the character of Padre Andres specifically, I wrote a lot of my own experience in ways that I didn't expect to be writing, mm-hmm. like the burden of one's family name and the connotations that have that has and having the 
being the child of two of parents of different cultural backgrounds who did not necessarily get along well at all and being plagued from a very young age of questions by questions of identity and belonging and faith I think are all things that are very familiar to me and I gave them to Andres and I think um you're right I don't think I've ever read fiction where the children of these violent encounters like they're inner lives are privileged in such a way that you really get a look at these kinds of internal, very intimate, emotional and personal conflicts. Because I think there's a lot of rhetoric about, you know, especially with Mexico, there's problematic rhetoric about mestizaje and like how we are all the children of La Malinche and like she is like was the mother of the first mestizo. And I'm like, that's a fucked up history. You yeah. know, that is a lot of racial, like a lot of sexual and racialized violence um that we've inherited and i found it like very difficult to write about and i think the beauty of genre fiction is that it allows us to come at trauma sideways and allows us to be vulnerable with it in a way that perhaps some of us are not cut out to face it head on when i think about powerful literary fiction that i've read or that i or literary fiction that i have not engaged with well as a reader i I and I think about writing it I think like that's just not who I am as a writer I can't face like the trauma that I own and the drama trauma that I've inherited head on in that way it's just I find it paralyzing and scary but when I put this conflict in you know the character of someone who's so unlike me in many ways you know a young man who is a priest in 19th century Mexico who practices witchcraft like it suddenly becomes more, it, it suddenly becomes easier for me to be vulnerable about writing about heavy topics because I'm coming at it sideways, yeah. you know? Yeah. It gives a bit of a, like a, just enough of a, a distance to um, allow you to examine it without personalizing it too much. Exactly. Exactly. You can create some context. I'm going to shift just a little bit because uh, I know we're, we're coming close to the end of time. But I wanted to talk a little bit about the um, feminist uh, aspects of this book, too. Mm -hmm. One of the things that struck me almost immediately about it is that Beatrice does not respond to the aggression from the house in a way typical to female protagonists in ghost stories or horror stories. Uh, she was she was afraid, definitely. And but she had such determination that mm -hmm. it almost seemed as though she was just not having it from the house. Like at one point in time, she just yells, you know. Yeah. Like, leave me alone. Yeah, and, not tonight, you bitch. <laughs> yeah. And I just, I loved that she had that inner strength that didn't, like, she didn't have to be put in, in a, in a weak position to come to a mm -hmm. stronger position through adversity or trauma. She was always a strong person. She always knew what she wanted to do. Mm -hmm. Uh, it was just that she was like, Oh shit, this is not going to work this way. I've got to switch it around. But each time she was met with, violence or intimidation on the part of the house she just like at one point she was just walking like almost horizontally into the wind like yeah. she's like I just need to get to bed I'm tired yeah and I loved that oh that makes me so happy I I I really wanted to read a heroine like this you know I I say this over and over again but I wrote the book I wanted to read because I read The Haunting of Hill House and I read Rebecca and I read like Wuthering Heights and like classic Gothic literature. And I feel like I 
especially Rebecca, like Rebecca touched on, like uh, uh, really touched a nerve for me. It pissed me off. Mm. You know, there's so much to admire about this book, but like with the character of Miss, like the unnamed Mrs. DeWinter, I was like, stand up for yourself, kid. Like fight back. And I think maybe, God, maybe this is just me. Cause somebody asked, somebody once asked me like, um, you know, somebody who doesn't read a lot of horror fiction asked me, you know, we were talking about this book from a very gothic perspective and it's gothic archetypes and stuff. But one person asked, when she asked, um, is this a thing in horror? And I said, no, I think this is a me thing, frankly, <laughs> because when I read horror as well, I get very frustrated by the passivity of characters. And I think it's possible to the passivity of characters. And I think it's possible to have, you know, a character who has growth and is engaging and who transforms through a horror novel without starting from a weakling or a weak kind of position. I really wanted to write somebody who does transform and who does change and her perspective on the world really shifts due to the uh, experience that she has living in this house, but she's not moving from weakness to strength. She's moving from strength to a different kind of strength and resilience. Yeah. She's not simpering at all. And towards the end uh, there, um, you could have taken a different um, route at the end than you did take. Mm -hmm. And I think uh, many other authors may have. Um, And I think that would have done the book a a disservice Mm -hmm. Um, because even through to the very last page, Beatrice is herself and she is self-possessed and she knows what she wants. And, um, and she's going to, she's going to do what she needs to do. Mm -hmm. And I really loved that. I'm so glad, you know, I've had, now that this book is out in the world, I have the privilege of hearing what people think about the ending and it is, it makes me, um, it brings me a lot of satisfaction to know that the ending is bittersweet and that it's resonating with readers because Beatrice is being true to herself and she's not being self-serving or I think I was talking to someone who called her conniving and I was like, did, did we, did you read the book? <laughs> <laughs> I don't see that to be honest. No, um, she's very pragmatic, but at the end she comes out of this experience and remains true to herself and she knows what she needs she knows uh, her relationship with her mother is really important to her throughout the story, but her relationship with herself is really important to her in this book. And I don't think that's something that we get a lot of in genre literature, because I think happily ever afters are romantic happily ever afters are powerful forms of escapism. They're cathartic. They're beautiful. But I think happily ever afters with yourself or hap- like happily ever afters that wrap with the main character choosing themselves are just as powerful. Yeah. Well, I'm going to close with one last question. Yeah. Uh, What makes this book feminist? I think (laughs) not Beatrice turning and shouting at the dark. Not tonight, you bitch. (laughs) But I think think, um, it's a story that is plays with one theme in particular that I thought was really interesting about the historical period and that was interesting to see play out in two characters in particular. In this historical period, at the end of this 11-year war of independence against Spain, it was basically a civil conflict. 
a class conflict in which money was so scarce that sometimes men were reduced to fighting with, they didn't have guns, so they went at it with rocks and sticks. I was very brutal and it was economically quite destructive. And what happened, a lot of men died. And so there were widows left after this war ended. There were girls or women who lost fathers and brothers and who suddenly found themselves with a new kind of autonomy that they had not experienced before as um, the heads of agricultural businesses like Juana, um, Beatriz's sister-in-law at Hacienda San Isidro or businesses in the city. And so it was a historical moment that interested me. And then I wanted to see this sudden autonomy, which is something that Beatriz craves. Like she is so protective of her own independence. Um, that She makes sacrifices in order to get it. And I wanted to see how that might play out in her foil, her sister-in-law, Juana, because they're very similar in many ways. But I think one of the things that makes this book feminist is the way that Juana almost embodies a certain kind of white feminism. She's willing to sacrifice other people in order to get what she wants. And those other people are not white. Yeah. <laughs> when it, and, and I think that seeing, it was really important to me to have those foils play against each other in the book because being feminist is not as simple as like being a girl boss. And Juana is a bit of a 19th century girl boss who will walk over people to secure her autonomy. And she's willing to, um, she makes decisions that Beatriz might not have in order to secure that independence and autonomy for herself. Um, but I think the motivations that both Beatriz and Juana have are familiar to many readers. And I think that's what makes them interesting characters. We have a lot of, when we read characters like that, we can have sympathy for them and understand their motivations. Um, but, you know, some of them are still villains. Yeah. Trust no one in this book. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I really appreciate you spending this time with us. This book, uh, The Hacienda, is phenomenal. If, if you're interested in horror, if you're interested in post-colonial gothic, if you need a good scare, if you um, want to just be super absorbed into a novel, absolutely pick this book up. It, run, don't walk. It is fantastic. Um, I, I couldn't be more excited that it's in the world. And I really hope it inspires more folks to write more things like this and expand the genre itself. Uh, Please, I want to read them. <laughs> yes, I do too. Uh, before we before we end, it, uh, where can folks find you on social media? Uh, they can find me on Instagram. Most often, I, I haunt uh, the Insta the most. My handle is at uh, Isabel Canas underscore. So I S A B E L C A N A S underscore. Um, Isabelcanas.com has a list of my short stories linked and my newsletter so you can get um, all the info on my upcoming releases because there's more to come guys i can't wait to read it um i am marquita guerrero you can find me on instagram at o underscore murray until next time folks be well thank you for tuning in to today's episode of feminist book club the podcast want to be part of the club here's how you can join us obviously subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for brownie points Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. 
Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature. When we were asked to partner up with Willa's Kitchen, we couldn't say no. Everyone at FBC HQ is lactose intolerant, and Willa's Kitchen has helped us keep our bellies happy and our bodies caffeinated. Willa's was founded by two sisters who were tired of plant-based milks that were mostly made of artificial, highly processed ingredients and loads of sugar, rather than actual plants. Plus, their grandmother Willa's recipe used real organic ingredients to create a deliciously smooth oat milk. And they thought, why not bring hers to the world instead? And we are so grateful. (laughs) As they started on their entrepreneurial journey, they kept learning more and more about the way plant-based milks are normally made. Heavy processing, loads of food waste, and lots of funny business, including ingredients like rapeseed and canola oil that they didn't want to be drinking or feeding to their kids every day. The biggest shocker they found was that oat milk is typically made with the oat sugar. The best parts of the oat are filtered out, and that results in an oat milk with a super sweet taste without all of the benefits of the oats. Willa's is made with the entire oat, which gives it a rich, smooth taste and maintains all the oats protein and prebiotic fiber and makes Willa's zero food waste. And it's not just a healthier, more sustainable oat milk, it's super tasty. That's why Willa's been highlighted in Bon Appetit not once, but three times. Find Willa's oat milk at willaskitchen.com. That's Willa's, W-I-L-L-A-S, kitchen. K-I-T-C-H-E-N.com. And with the promo code book club, you can get 20% off and support this podcast. That's promo code book club at williskitchen.com for 20% off. Thanks, Willis.